I want to just take the opportunity to thank the church for the welcome you gave us, and especially for the hamper and the gifts and the cards. It was all very well received and we felt very welcomed and loved, so thank you very much. Um, all right. Let's just look at the passage. So we're looking at the second, the first half of Colossians 2, uh, 1 to 15. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away having nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And we thank God for his word. So I'm going to just recap a little bit what we did in chapter one. We've spent two weeks on Colossians so far. Um, however, because it's hard to look at chapter two in isolation from chapter one, Although we've looked at it already, I want to just go over a few things and refresh our memories. So we saw over the last two weeks how Paul first heard about the Colossians and their faith, and how he had been praying for them that they would understand the will of God and be able to live their lives in terms of God's will. He tells the Colossians that the gospel is spreading and growing everywhere, and in telling them this, he locates them in the bigger picture. This was a way of encouraging them by letting them know that they were not alone. And we also saw how Paul reminded them that the centre of their faith is the person of Jesus, not just an ordinary man, but God himself, incarnated as a man, and now the head of a new human family, the new human family, and the ruler of the whole universe. And Paul reminds the Colossians that they were once outside that new human family, but have been brought into it. They were once hostile to God, but God took the initiative and reconciled them to himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So in other words, the hostility that they had towards God had been absorbed by Jesus at the cross. And as a result, they had become his brothers and sisters in a new family. 
And this concept of being in a new family is very important. And then finally, we saw how Paul told the Colossians who he was. Because if you remember from before, he had not actually met them. He'd not been there. He'd heard about them, but he had not been involved in planting the church there. One of his friends had done it, someone he knew. But Paul tells them that because of the calling that he has as an apostle and as a missionary, he has been struggling and suffering on their behalf. He feels responsibility for them so that they would know the will of God and be able to stand firm when they themselves experience suffering. And then behind all of this, in the background of the letter, is the hint that there is some wrong teaching about Jesus going around and possibly creeping into their thinking. Now we don't know what it was for sure, people speculate, but it's likely that it was a couple of things, one or two or both of two things. The first one being that Jesus was not really human, but he just appeared to be human. Meaning that if that's the case, he didn't suffer when he died, he just appeared to suffer. And if Jesus didn't really suffer and wasn't really human man, then he does not identify with us or represent us correctly to God. And this in turn means that he doesn't save us, basically can't save us, because he's not one of us. And then secondly, the second possible wrong teaching that being a Christian was about learning about spiritual beings, be they angels or demons, and having them as kind of mediators or things that we should pay attention to as opposed to our faith being grounded and focused on the person of Jesus and his kingdom. So those are the two possible wrong ideas that were in the background to this letter. And what you'll see, or what we'll see in this letter is Paul addressing these issues sort of in an indirect way. So in response to these issues, in the first two chapters of Colossians, we have, we have Paul very clearly dis- describing Jesus as fully God and fully man as being the one who created the universe, yet who also has a real physical body and who really suffered and died. He also rules over the authorities, all authorities, whether these are earthly powers or angelic or demonic powers and authorities. He rules over them because he made them and they're all subject to him. Therefore, for us, we don't have to deal with angels or demons as mediators or in any other way we deal directly with the creator of the universe, who is also one of us, and has also given himself for us. And with respect to the learning of secret things, the only secret that matters now is the one that has been made known to everyone and is therefore no longer a secret, and that is the person of Jesus himself. So in the Old Testament, the person... um, Sorry, in the, in, the, in the Old Testament period, it wasn't clear who Jesus was. There were hints in the Old Testament of what God was going to do. However, they only really make sense after the fact. And so when we read the Old Testament, in the light of the fact that we're Christians and we've got 2,000 years of Christian history and teaching and church life, it's very easy for us when we read the Old Testament to sort of to see Jesus in the Old Testament to see what God was doing in the images and shadows and hints and sometimes appearances. But for them, it was much more difficult before the fact. Um, 
And this may be one reason why the Jews, some of the Jews had a hard time with Jesus, because basically he just, when he turned up, he was completely different from what they were expecting. So what was formerly secret, the person of Jesus is now known. And Paul says that the good news about Jesus is being preached and proclaimed freely all over the world and is bearing fruit. So in other words, there's no longer anything that's hidden. There's no esoteric secret to learn. The, the truth of the gospel is out there and it's for everybody. And, and what will happen, what the thing that we can discover is in a sense the knowledge of God's will. That's what Paul is praying about here and he's, he's telling the Colossians about that he wants them to discover the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding and that this will enable us to live in a way that pleases God. So I want to look at a couple of things in particular in this chapter. And these are the role of thankfulness in helping us to maintain unity and simplicity in our faith. And then the question, the second one, is really the person of Jesus and what he's done for us. Paul had already begun to talk about this in the first chapter, but he repeats certain things and continues to develop this in chapter 2. So the way that Paul lays out the first verses in chapter 2 is very interesting. Um, and as I said already this morning in the first uh, service, there's a certain sequence of what he's saying that's not an accident. First of all, he wants the Colossians to be encouraged. And he knows that their being encouraged will come from having their hearts knit together in unity. And this unity, in turn, will mean that they have more and more revelation of who Jesus is. And I suppose we could say that as they know Jesus more, they'll be encouraged, they'll experience more unity, and then they'll know more of Jesus, and sort of on and on it will go. And just when I was reading this through this morning, um, after I'd finished preparing it um, on Friday, I remembered there's this bit in Revelation 4, where there are these four, chapter 4, there are four living creatures that are perpetually before the throne, and they cry out all day long, they cry out, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then, when they do that, they, they fall down before the Lord, and they cast their crowns before him. And then, then they say, holy, 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 and it's kind of this cycle that goes on and on and on. And I think what's happening there is that as they worship God, they get a little bit more revelation of who God is. And it makes them worship God more, and then they get a bit more revelation of who God is and who Jesus is. And that, that perpetual insight, that growth of insight, just results in more and more and more sort of knowledge of God. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, be encouraged, experience unity, know more of Jesus. When you know more of Jesus, you'll be more encouraged. You'll love each other, you'll have more unity, and that will just go on and on. That's the ideal. I mean, I'm not saying that's the reality we live, but this is, in a sense, what Paul is saying God wants for us. And while there is, um, while love and unity are sort of by themselves good and wonderful things to have, there is a bigger picture in play. Um, there is a longer term and bigger sort of picture going on in that. And that is that, if you remember in John chapter 17, where Jesus prayed that the future believers, in John 17 he prays for the disciples and then his second prayer is for those who would believe in the future. Prays for us who weren't even born at that time. And he says that, he prays that we would love one another. And he says 
they will love one I pray that they will love him, love one another that the world may know that you sent me. So this is very important for us to remember that unity we might think of it as a great thing, but the thing is people are watching us. People are observing us all the time. We don't realise it. Um, but they do, they watch us. They want to know whether we're really, you know, whether we really believe what we say. And when we love one another, that's a very strong indication that we take Jesus seriously. And that is, um, that's very important for our evangelism, for our witness in the community, that we are true to what we say. And the main way that that manifests, I think, is in unity. So Paul also urges the Colossians to continue to walk in Christ in the same way that they received him. I'm not 100% sure what that means, but I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it means that they should continue, they should walk in a kind of simplicity of faith. And just in the same way that they received Jesus by simply accepting what they were told about him, that they should continue in that simplicity and not try to complicate things by importing bizarre and strange and secret teachings. Now, if you remember in, in Matthew's Gospel, and I think probably the other Gospels as well, there was a point where Jesus took a child in the midst of the crowd and he set the child before him and he said to them, uh, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you need to enter it as a child. And what he meant by that was that, you know, when you teach small children, they believe what you say when you tell them stuff, especially if they're your own children. Um, it doesn't last forever. But there's a moment, there's a window when children are small, when they, they accept things at face value. And I think that's what Jesus is saying we need to do with the things that he tells us. We need to accept them at face value. We don't need to complicate God's word. We're called to believe it and to act in terms of it. And so I think what Paul is saying here is that you Colossians, don't, don't get into complicated worship of angels or um, bizarre ideas about you know wrong teaching about Jesus. Just continue to walk in that simplicity of faith that you had at the beginning when, it, when the gospel was first preached to you. And then, I think the key to both of these things, so the, the sort of the unity of the body and the simplicity of faith, um, I think the key to that, those two things, is having an attitude of thankfulness. And that's what Paul says, I think, in verse 6 uh, or 8, where he says, in everything sort of be abounding in thanksgiving. Um, and the reason that thanksgiving is so powerful and transformative is that when we are thankful people, what we're doing is we're acknowledging who God is. Um, we're lining up our thinking in terms of the true reality of the world and the universe, the way God has made it. Because everything comes from God, he made everything. And so when we recognize that, we're thinking correctly. We've got things in the right order in our mind. And it's also a way of like attuning ourselves to his priorities and that his priorities become our priorities. And another thing, another important result of thanking God for what he has done is that we can thank God for each other. When we start recognizing the good things that we can give thanks for, we can actually recognize what God has done in, in other people. And 
what this does is it makes it easier for us to love one another. Um, so if we're given to complaining and finding fault with God and the world, then it's very easy to find fault with each other. And I think we probably know that, we all know that from, from experience, that we're all prone to do this. But I think what God wants us to do is be thankful and that allows us to understand you know, who God is and get our thinking right and then it has a horizontal effect of helping us to sort of maintain unity and bear with each other when we, when we irritate and bug each other. And hopefully the result of that will be the growth of God's kingdom. So in the second half of our passage, after these encouragements and exhortations, Paul moves on to address the false teaching. <clears throat> and he does it positively rather than negatively. That is, he doesn't give a kind of seminar on, on the wrong teaching. He goes straight for the most important thing and he, he presents Jesus correctly and who he is. And so what Paul is saying is that if you understand who Jesus is, then you won't be deceived when people come with other ideas or they try to twist that or deceive you with spiritual sounding talk. Um, and the first thing that Paul does is that he repeats a point he made in chapter one, which is that Jesus Christ is God in bodily form. And as we already saw, this is important because if Jesus isn't the real person, I already said this, but if Jesus isn't a real human person like us, then he doesn't represent us and he can't save us. And unless God dwelt fully and completely in Jesus, that would mean that Jesus was kind of like a little God or a piece of God or something weird like that. And that would have the same result. He wouldn't be able to save us. So this is Paul doing Trinitarian teaching. And it is difficult. You know, when we start talking about the Trinity, I remember when I first became a Christian, I was in a, you know, Lord forgive me, I was in a Baptist church. And um, I was being discipled. <laughs> Sorry, Baptists. I was um, being discipled by this guy um, because in a Baptist church, before they'll baptize you, you have to do the membership program that can take like almost a year sometimes. And um, so I was doing this and my friend and I, and we said, well, what about the Trinity? You know, that's just so weird. We don't understand that. And um, so this older guy, he went and asked the pastor, could you explain the Trinity? And apparently the pastor just turned his back on him and walked away. <laughs> he just refused to get into it. Um, so some people are, a lot of people are really turned off the, you know, thinking about the Trinity because it's so difficult to understand. And the truth is we can't understand it. It is something that is actually beyond us because actually the Trinity created us. We are things that God made and we're not, you know, the thing that is made cannot really understand the thing that made it. However, when we, when we accept this kind of teaching, this is a very clear Trinitarian teaching here, when we accept it, um, and when we, when we understand that when we worship God in Trinity, this is another thing that can help us in our thinking. Because if you think about it, the world is made up of diversity, and it's also made of individuals. It's made of people and groups. And, um, you know, a lot of politics and discussion and problems in life come from not being able to balance these things out correctly. And so um, the Trinity, you know, worshipping God in Trinity does help us to cope with unity and diversity, but that is a, perhaps another subject for another time. Um, and if, you, if some of you have no clue what I'm talking about, then please talk to me afterwards. Um, secondly, Paul explains what Jesus has done. God has connected us to Jesus by a circumcision that is made without hands. 
And in the Old Testament, the prophets often were railing against Israel and saying to them, you're not circumcised, or you don't have circumcised ears, or you don't have circumcised hearts. Now it's impossible to circumcise someone's heart, they die. And it's, you know, I don't know what a circumcised ear would look like, but it wouldn't be pretty. So these are, these are metaphors for people that wouldn't listen to God, or who had a hard heart and, and, and wouldn't listen to God in the sense that they wouldn't believe him. Um, and so what that tells us is that having a circumcised heart or having a circumcised ear is to be in right relationship with God and it is to be able to hear God and obey God. And so Paul says that God circumcised their hearts when they were baptized. And it means that God took away their resistance or their hardness to him. And um, I'm not saying that you know, we're regenerated automatically by baptism. Baptism is always accompanied by faith. But Paul says that this happened you know, when you were baptized and it was as if they died and were raised from the dead. And when they were raised from the dead, they had a new heart and a new life. And Paul also says it is as if there was a list of all the bad things they had ever done. Okay, all the things that like all the things that I've done, for example, in my life, that when I think about them now, I still cringe in shame. Paul took, uh, sorry, God took that list when Jesus died and he nailed it to the cross with Jesus. So Jesus is the one who was shamed on the cross. And that, that means that he took my shame and he took all of those things and he, and he forgave me. He bore that shame. But then there's this interesting bit at the end of our passage where Paul says that when Jesus died on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame. And I think what Paul is talking about here is to demonic rulers and authorities that would hold people down and remind them constantly of their shame. Always accusing us of the things we've done wrong and making us weak with kind of shame and self-hatred. And, and that self-hatred that we can sometimes have and shame, this comes back to our theme of unity because when we feel bad about ourselves, that is often when we mistreat or, or talk wrongly to others. And so what God has done is he's taken that shame and he put it on the cross with Jesus where Jesus was shamed. But then the result of Jesus rising from the dead was that he then he put on public display somehow, I don't understand it, but in some cosmic way, he put to shame those authorities who delighted to shame us when we were not believers. And, and it's not to say that as Christians we automatically feel free of shame. All of us still struggle, struggle with it. But the point is, we need to remember that when we're tempted to feel shame or self-hatred, we have to remember that Jesus has dealt with us for that for us. It's not something that we need to. It's not something that we need to live. It's something we need to put behind us. So we'd just like, in conclusion, to say a couple of things. I'd like us to take away um, just the focus that our faith is on Jesus Himself. And one way of making sure that Jesus is at the centre of our thinking and doing is to cultivate thankfulness and also to seek unity and love with each other. These things are linked together. Thanking God for all his gifts helps us to have a positive outlook 
and it helps us to bear one another when relationships are difficult. And when we learn to love one, love one another in this way, God blesses our community and those outside the community who will have more reason to believe our message. And then secondly, just the point I was making a minute ago, whenever we're tempted to dwell on feelings of shame for things we've done or said in the past, let us remember that Jesus died to take away that shame.